Welcome to Stars, Cells, and God, a new podcast from Reasons to Believe. And uh, you can engage Reasons to Believe through all of our different social media platforms at RTB underscore official. And I'm joined here by Jeff Swirink, one of our senior staff scientists at Reasons to Believe. I'm Hugh Ross, the founder and president of Reasons to Believe. And we're here to talk about the latest scientific discoveries and how these provide uh, more evidence uh, for the Christian faith. And uh, Jeff, uh, you've come with some really interesting stuff about education and artificial intelligence. Tell well, us about it. So I'm going to start off just by asking a question. And you know, don't answer right away because I want people in the audience to have a think about it. But So somebody goes into a store, uh, they want to buy a ball and a bat, and uh, the person tells them, uh, all right, the, the total cost is $1.10, and the bat costs a dollar more than the, the ball. How much does the ball cost? Now you're sitting there. I know you've seen something like this in your reasoning. It's like, okay, I know how to calculate that. But most people, when they get that, they're going to have an, an intuition that the ball is $0.10 cents and the bat is $1.10 because that's a, do- a dollar between them. That's going to be their quick, intuitive, fast way of thinking about it. And in this particular instance, uh, when you think about it a little bit, you're going to find out that that's wrong because if the ball's ten cents and the bat's a dollar, a dollar ten, you're going to get a buck twenty. So your right. so your question's wrong. Your question's wrong, right? Um, but uh, and, and so the way you end up going and figuring it out is you got your two equations there. You got one that says okay, bat plus ball is a dollar ten. Bat minus ball is a dollar, and you work out the equations and find that one of them's five cents and the other is a dollar five, and that satisfies the equations. This what is the, before inflation, right? Uh, well before <laughs> well it's just this really small ball you can't actually play out in the field with it okay <laughs> but what it illustrates is that there's actually two ways that we engage and think about things and uh uh one of them you know so scientists have been working to try and understand and develop a good model of how do humans think and reason and in particular, why I found this fascinating is because when you think about scientists, you think, okay, they're the rational, they sit down, they do all the calculations, they always work everything out, that that's the right, proper way to do things. Um, you know, and then there's kind of the, you know, either irrational or, or, or maybe we'll just call it non-rational, where you just kind of sense what's going on or you respond and you don't think. And that there's, that science only works because of, that more slow, deliberative, or, or analytic process. And, and what's fascinating, what the, this team of scientists have come up with, is that in order to properly model how we think, they come up with these models that are called uh, dual process, uh, I'm drawing a blank on the T, dual process uh, models, where you have a, what, the, what they term, and I'll read it here, it's, it's a fast, automatic, and subconscious process, and then there's a slow, effortful, and deliberative process. And that first one they term uh, intuition, uh, and then the second one they term analytic. And what was fascinating about this for me is not that they could identify these two, but that being able to use both is critical for how we think. So it's not like the scientist comes along and says, all right, everything, I'm just going to crank out and work it's out the It's all analytical. Yeah. It's not all analytical. Right. In fact, in order to know what things to devote the analytic resources to, you have to have a good intuitive sense of things. And so, uh, but, but one key feature in there 
or, or again, if this works well, is that there's got to be some way to recognize when your intuitive process has gotten the right answer and when it's gotten the wrong answer. So you got to have some error correction in there. And again, what I find fascinating in all that is that you know, given given a given a problem, I can often sit down and figure out how to go, uh, where to go with it. But what I will find is that. Uh, my intuition tells me how to go about it. And so there are things that I have learned in my intuition. Uh, there are things that I know how to do analytically, and I've developed both those skills, and everybody's done that. And, but just as a scientist, I've been forced to do that well. But where I got to thinking about this is in terms of developing AI. Well, when you're talking about analytical and slow effort deliberative, it's, it's kind of easy to see how to accomplish that. Because, how to write the code. Yeah, there, there are equations you can do. There are algorithms you can come with. Algorithmizing this slow, deliberate, analytic, but by its nature, it's slow, it's deliberate, it's, it's methodical, and putting a, a, a method behind it is not that hard. How do you do that with the intuitive process? Because... Um, there are things that I just kind of know. There are things that I kind of intuitively know. There are things that I have taught myself so remotely that I intuitively know. So when I go out to a store and I go out and buy a whole bunch of stuff and they ring it up and it says X number of dollars, somehow in my intuition, I just kind of know whether it's right or wrong or not. And sometimes it'll seem a little high. And I've developed a, a kind of a combination of the intuitive and a analytic where I can go and just kind of give some uh, back-of-the-envelope calculations and say, is, is my intuition correct or not? And, and then sometimes I find errors, and sometimes I have to go in and be far more deliberate and just go and calculate the cost of every item and such. But the, the part that uh, I find interesting, especially from the AI perspective, and I think it kind of casts light on how exceptional human reasoning is, is that that intuitive process, there are going to be algorithmic parts to it. So, you know, I mean, you don't have to think about what eight times eight is. You just know it's 64. But you have trained that to be an intuitive process. And so there's parts of that where you can train it. It's past experience. But that intuitive part also has a creative component. And, and I would argue it even has a spiritual component to it. And, uh, you know, just as an example, there are times in my scientific career where I've been working at a problem. I've just been pounding it away for it for days. You know, I've written manuals. I'm coding things, trying to get it. And, and I just can't get it to work. And so I'm coming to a place that's like, all right, I, I need this to work. So I step back, and I, I, rem I, I conduct, or in a couple of times I can recount having specifically done this. I'm like, God, I've been working at this problem. I need to get it solved. I don't know where to go. I don't have any resources. Can you help me solve it? And so, uh, you know, not like I just sit there and wait, and God says, oh, it's this. But I'll go back, and I'll start working on the problem again. And a number of times I've done that, and within five minutes I've, Reading the same manual I've read 12 times already, I one time I remember catching a comment. You know, it was a parenthetical comment that if your cable is bad, it'll cause this problem. And I, like I said, I've read that 12 times, so it's not new. But somewhere in there, it's like, oh, that's important. And so I go pull out my cable, and lo and behold, this cable that I crimped three months ago, the middle part of the cable wasn't crimped properly, and so it wasn't making electrical contact. Go crimp it down, boom, my problem solved. So that intuition also, I think, not only does it have some of a past experience, some of it is a creative, but I also think it's a flash of insight or God revealing things, that there's a 
an, an almost an inherently non-algorithmic component to that, which raises the question in AI if this intuitive component is a key component of how we operate, how we think, how our mind works, and therefore our consciousness, will we ever be able to replicate that? I, I just thought it kind of had some, some kind of fascinating implications That's in that regard. That's really interesting because, you know, that really gets at the dual nature of humanity versus the idea that we're purely physicalists. Mm -hmm. I mean, if there's something in our mind that's intuitive, that's not algorithmic, that kind of supports the idea that we really do have a dual nature. There's more going on in our brain than just the physical neurons. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I mean, I, I think that's a that's a great insight, and you know, I think at the very minimum, what I would say is that at least in investigating this intuitive part, that there's something about that that is not just a combination of all the physical things that are going on. That there is something more there. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm just in your comment there. I was starting to think, you know, in the analytic deliberative process, is there something else in there that points to something beyond the physical and that seems a little little harder case to make because yeah. it is very much a we're applying natural things you know and and making but how do you explain the eureka of an inventor uh, or of a scientist where just out of the blue uh, something has nothing to do with our analytic suddenly solves the problem and it comes out of nowhere uh, how do you explain that yeah, it's a good question, and you know, there's part of me I would love to say, well, here I can wrap up this case and show you how it works, and clearly this is this is the you know it's something beyond. But you know, I also know some of those eureka moments. Uh, I had a professor once when I was in college, uh, I was in graduate school, said, you know, work on your problems, and and when you get stuck, just leave them alone and go do something else for a while. And come back. And yeah. what he recognized is that even though I may not be consciously thinking about it, my subconscious is working on it. Right. And so, I mean, if you argue that your conscious is purely physical, then there's there's this you're not aware, but there's something going on. And, you know, that's why in the middle of the night it's like, oh, that was that person's name. It's like I haven't been thinking about it. And I almost oddly enough, there are times where I can consciously make myself not think about something. And I. Because I know that if I do that, I'll eventually remember it. <laughs> you know, so it's just this weird... <laughs> well, I don't know about you, but I've had these experiences where I'm working on a really difficult uh, physics problem. And uh, I just say, you know, i got to go do something else. Mm -hmm. And you wind up going to sleep. And about uh, four hours later, you have this dream where suddenly it just pops right out. <laughs> you wake up, i got to write this down <laughs> before you go back to sleep. So... Well, and... I I would argue that I, it seems like God has designed us to be that way. Um, yes. You know, it, it, you know I, it, and again, I just want, kind of want to contrast that with there's this prevailing idea out there that, you know, science, that's about the facts and the reason and the rationality and, and Christianity, you know, religion, but Christianity and all religions, that's about believing and feelings and emotions. And it's kind of this bifurcation of who we are that in some way the rationality and the reason that's what's right and good and that's that's what gets us to the correct place and you can kind of all that emotion and belief and that, that's just that's just not that's not important and i agree that it may be easier to get derailed and finding truth over here and there's there's a systematic aspect of being able to recognize truth in this way but it's, we're, we're built with all of that. There, there's nothing I ever do that doesn't have a creative component. Right. Even in my calculations, there's, I do those calculations probably differently than you, and the thought processes in my mind are probably different than what you are, even though there's a similarity in them. And so 
that well, I, that that bifurcation seems to be a a, a harmful Jeff, way of everything at. you're saying is giving me a huge flashback to when I was a senior undergrad, and we had this laboratory physics uh, thing, and what the professor said is, we know you're skilled with the analytical approach. We want to teach you how to build your intuition mm-hmm. into your physics laboratory work. And so typically we would walk into the lab and there would be a ton of equipment on the desk. And they always gave us a time limit. You've got three hours to, to achieve this result, but you had this massive amount of equipment mm-hmm. and 90% of it was utterly useless. Mm-hmm. And so the trick was how to find what you need to do to get <laughs> the result. And then other times we'd walk, and they would never tell us ahead of time. You'd walk into the lab, and there'd be almost nothing there. And it's like, and they give you this really challenging assignment. Right. And it's like, okay, I'm supposed to time this. There's no clock. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to figure out, hey, you're supposed to use your heartbeat. Right. Uh, to <laughs> be the clock. And, uh, you know, uh, you had this little eyedropper, and you had to drop a little bit of liquid out of there. And you had to look at the oscillation of the eye drop as it fell towards down there to figure out what the viscosity was. Right. You had to do dimensional analysis. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, and you're basically forced to use your intuition right. to get the result because you didn't have the equipment to do the right, analytical yeah. work. Or you had way too much equipment and you had to figure out, okay, uh, what do I need to do? But right. I really enjoyed that class because it really forced all of us to get the creative element back into our physics uh, approach. Mm-hmm. And you know, we had three years already of the analytical stuff. This is just right. And they're basically saying, you do well in this course, we're going to recommend you for grad school. Mm-hmm. But if you don't, we won't. Well, so. your conclusions align, or your your story uh, val- or enhances the conclusions they're drawing right. from this article. Because again, there's this popular notion and prevailing. In fact, I think if you ask most people, they'd probably say, "Yeah, the the analytical is that that's a key to being good as a scientist." But what they what they noted was. Um, you know, that when you're dealing with intro physics students, there's a lot of times their intuition can derail them, uh, you know, and, there, and there's, so we're talking about how do you help teach intuition? How do you teach physics in a way that develops the intuition and the analytic component? Because what they recognize is that any good, skilled scientist has both of them. They they use their intuition to know when they need to go deeper and dig in, but they also use their intuition to constrain what are going to be workable solutions. They may have a, a, a an intimate or you know kind of an intuitive sense of conservation laws or symmetries or or these kinds of problems. You know, I mean, I, I, I when I asked you that question, I could tell just. I know this is a gotcha problem. Whether you've seen that problem or not, it's like you, you've got an intuition that this is more than just do the quick calculation because there's something there. There's an intuition you had that helps you know when to go devote the resources to do the slow, deliberate, analytical work and when your intuition is correct. And I'm thinking this is going to have some application for education. Mm-hmm. Because, again, going back to my physics experience, what our professors do is we're going to give you the analytical stuff first because if we don't, your intuition is going to run wild and you're, you're going to be off, off track. Mm-hmm. At the end, they gave us the intuition training. But I'm just wondering in this stuff that you've been reading, uh, Jeff, maybe there's some really good insights here on how we can better educate the next generation of scientists or for that matter, how we can better educate everybody. Well, I, I see two things that come out of this, and the, you know, the what I points to think about at least is 
there's a sense, you know, especially when you're, well, when you're dealing with artificial intelligence, one of the things you've got to do is come up with algorithms to do whatever you want to accomplish. And what I've increasingly come to realize, and I think this research supports, is that while everything I do has an algorithmic component to it, uh, you know, in preparing for this talk, there's, there's an algorithm of mm -hmm. how did I look for discoveries, what am I looking for? There's an algorithm component, but nothing I do is just an algorithm. And so when you're talking about developing an AI, there's an algorithm to it, but it's humanity, and especially when it comes to our consciousness and, that, and then that intuitive side of things, there's an algorithm component to it, but there's something beyond that. And if we can't, if, if you can't systematize that something beyond, then you're never going to get AI to replicate human behavior. You're going to have it mimic human behavior, but it's not doing what humans do. And I think that's going to, you know, as we continue to investigate that, that's going to show the exceptional, unique nature of humanity, that there's, there's a consciousness that we have that we can mimic it, but we can't produce it. So I think that's one thing. But then it also just strikes me that you look at how a lot of how we're increasingly communicating in our society today. Um, when something happens, there's immediately everybody goes on social media and says, here's what I think about it. And when something, you know, it's, it's this very quick response, which is drawing exclusively on that intuitive side of things, which doesn't leave a lot of chance for does your, is, is this really right, or how do you error correct there to make sure you get over that? And quite honestly, one of the things I noticed when, particularly around the election, is that depending on how my social media was configured, I got two very different stories of what was going on. And if, if I listened to this story, I assumed this was right. My intuition was trained to think this way. But if my social media was configured this way, I got this story over here. So our way we're consuming media is almost designed to keep us from thinking deeply about things. And buying lots of products. Fair, fair <laughs> point. But it, it just struck me that, uh, you know, I, I don't get to say what does the world get to do, but it does seem to me as Christians we are called to be thoughtful, careful people. You know, the, I, I just read in James, you know, it says be slow to speak, quick to listen, that uh, we are, in some sense, we're kind of allowing or the society at least, the, the mechanisms that society is putting in place, is pushing us to be very quick to respond, which is going to subvert that more thoughtful, deliberative, analytic process, which helps us correct errors and find the truth instead of what's most expedient, what works, what's convenient, whatever it is. And so I just think that's a I, – I, I took that as an admonition that I need to be careful, that I'm not just responding quickly – but also thinking deliberatively and training my intuition to think well the best I can. Very good. And I love how you introduced this, that artificial intelligence is a great way to test a key Christian doctrine. Mm -hmm. You know, core to Christianity is that we humans have a dual nature, physical and spiritual. And we're developing artificial intelligence. It's all physical. So mm -hmm. there's a fundamental limit in what we can do to mimic uh, human thinking then that's going to establish the uh, Christian worldview that there's something beyond the physical that's part of our human mind. I, I agree. And the, and the one caveat I would give with that is that um, I think we're inclined to see artificial intelligence as being human. And so I, I don't think there's any limit to how well we can mimic human behavior. 
We're just going to see that and be inclined to say, oh, we've replicated human, or human thought and consciousness. In reality, all we've done is mimicked it. We haven't actually done the same thing. And we're going to make computers, I think, that can do human behavior better than humans. That, that's my suspicion well, of where we're going to end up. I'm old enough to remember when they were saying, we'll never make a computer program that can outperform a, a championship human chess player. And uh, now humans are not able to compete with these computers at all. Exactly. I mean, we just didn't anticipate uh, what un you know, unlimited memory can do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if you've got unlimited memory, uh, you're definitely going to be better than the best chess player. <laughs> so, Well, that, if you have the right algorithms. In if you've got the right <laughs> algorithms and if you've got uh, self-learning uh, algorithms, algorithms that actually teach. I mean, I look at Google Translate, mm -hmm. you know. I was communicating with this physicist in Ukraine, and when we started with Google Translate, it was awful. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's a, so the algorithms actually uh, teach themselves how to translate better and better, just taking what we're trying to communicate. Well, and, and your, your description of it, if I, I'll pick at you a little bit here, is perfect example of how we tend to use language that imbues, because the AI isn't teaching itself. It's following an algorithm yeah, you know, so so I, I don't know what the exact I'm language. I'm feeding a data exactly. Yeah, so <laughs> and so it's mimicking me better and better because exactly right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. But but you know, when you just see even the language there is, we're inclined to see AI as doing what humans do, even though they're not doing it the way we do it. So yeah, so the fact <laughs> that they start off not doing it too well, but get better and better, is because they're mimicking us more yeah. and more closely. And we've developed an algorithm that that facilitates that. learning. So exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, Jeff. This is really interesting. <laughs> well, good. So okay. I know you have a discovery. Why don't we shift over to that? Yeah, this is a little different. It's got nothing to do with AI. It's all okay. about measurements. And uh, I know you're a guy that is involved in instruments. And so I read this paper. I was just fascinated by the instrumentation they brought into this. But the bottom line is it's uh, basically looking at how can we more deeply test particle creation models. And, uh, you know, what excites me about particle creation models is if you really push them to their limits, they begin to uh, move into cosmic creation models. That, to me, is what's so exciting. I was being so can, I, can I just take, because <coughs> particle creation models, that's, that's not a term I'm, I, I kind of, I'm around you enough to know, I think, what you mean. But what do you mean by that? So. Well, what's the physics behind uh, how particles come into existence and okay. how they relate to one another? And, uh, you know, if you go back into the early history of the universe, that's where you got the uh, energy densities uh, where these particles begin to come into play. Okay. And so this is what I mean is that if we're on the right track with our particle creation models, uh, they're going to blend seamlessly with our best cosmic creation models. Okay. So I kind of look at cosmologists and particle physicists. They're basically on the same team. Maybe they never talk to one another, uh, but ultimately... Uh, they are on the same team mm -hmm. uh, because a good cosmic creation model is going to be uh, able to integrate well with the best uh, particle creation models. Okay. So, and uh, this is an attempt to look at protons and antiprotons. And, uh, you know, the big question, in fact, I'll give you a little quote here uh, from the very beginning of uh, the paper where they say the standard model of particle physics is both incredibly successful and glaring in incomplete. There's parts that we haven't yet. <laughs> and kind of the big question is, how do we explain the fact 
that uh, we've got more matter than antimatter in the universe. Right. We know they started off both being equivalent. And if that's the case, we shouldn't even be here. Uh, but somehow the universe wound up with more matter than antimatter, and therefore we have a universe, we've got life, etc. And uh, we got some understanding of how that works. I mean, we know that uh, as the different forces of physics come into play, different particles appear. You get symmetry breakings. There's a lot of speculation on that. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line in terms of testing this, what can we do uh, to come up with more definitive tests of different components right. of the standard particle creation model? And what they did in this paper is they said, we're going to look at the proton to antiproton charge to mass ratio. So they looked at the charge to mass ratio for protons and the charge to mass ratio of antiprotons. The standard model says they're going to be one and the same. Uh, but it's been difficult to actually measure that with high precision. And that's kind of what's significant about this paper. It's the first really high precision mm -hmm. measurement. So, so what's going on there is we see this asymmetry in the universe of there's more matter than antimatter. And, you know, I think you said we know, but it seems like th there's this logical assumption that they started both one and the same. Because you, know, right. you would expect a symmetry there. You expect and, a symmetry there, and somewhere the symmetry breaks. And one of the one of the clues that might give us what led to that asymmetry is if the charge to mass ratio of the antiproton was different than the proton. So we're looking for places where there's asymmetries in the way the laws of physics work that could explain the uh, the asymmetry and how much matter there is. Right, but given that these happen very early in the history mm -hmm. of the universe, we'd be predicting that today they're going to be the charge to mass ratio of the proton should be the same as the charge to mass ratio of the antiproton. So that's kind of what this paper right, okay. was pursuing. And uh, the big problem with previous attempts to measure this to high precision was trying to weed out the systematics. And so what they did is they said, we're going to come up with four completely different instrumental approaches to measuring and mm -hmm. comparing these ratios. So four completely different... With each different instrument package, you're going to have different systematics. And I probably ought to define what a systematic is. That, would so that might be, be helpful. <laughs> a systematic in terms of this kind of thing is where you have this instrument, but when you're using the instrument to make a, a very definitive measurement, it tends to shift all the values off to a high or to a low. That's what we mean by systematic because you've got random errors, where you got kind of the noise in the instrument, mm -hmm. which gives you values up and down around the true value. Uh, but there could be an instrumental effect that shifts all the measurements a little bit above the real value or a little bit below the real value. So, th so this could be like, you know, you're out using a meter stick, and for reasons beyond, you know, that you, you just can't see the end of the meter stick, and the meter stick actually has the first three centimeters are cut off. Right. So that would be a, you'd have a three centimeter shift, right. not because there's a real shift, but because there's a systematic that you can't there's identify. There's something in the instrument right, yeah. that you're having difficulty identifying. And, uh, you know, what this research team did, it was, uh, yeah, what is it, 28 uh, physicists were involved. Mm -hmm. As I looked at the list, one of the guys is a guy I knew at Caltech. Oh, yeah. So that was kind of fun. <laughs> nice. Uh, but uh, they've been working on this literally for a decade. And uh, what they did is they came up four different experiments, four different instruments, and they ran them for a year and a half. Mm -hmm. So they're looking for some kind of time. In other words, is the ratio time dependent? This kind of gets into what's called the uh, uh, weak equivalence principle. 
is that uh, you know if there is some violation of the standard model, you might be able to see it if you make measurements over a significant period of time. So they ran all four of these uh, experiments, making daily measurements over a course of one and a half years. Mm -hmm. And with that, they were able to determine. Uh, and by the way, I think I got a little photo here showing one of the instruments of the four. Uh, yeah, there you go. And that kind of takes me back to my undergraduate days, probably yours too, uh, where a professor would come up and say, hey, uh, this instrument isn't working, uh, fix it. And so, and, then, and we need it done within an hour. So you get all these uh, meter equipments, there you go, and uh, try to figure, okay, is there a, a short in the wire? As you're saying, hey, maybe there's a crimp that's missing. Right. And uh, that's a standard job you give an undergraduate physics student. Here's something that's not working, instrument that's not working. Uh, go fix it. And why do you do that? It's really a good training thing uh, for the undergraduate. Uh, to it, it, it's part of what will build their intuition of knowing where problems actually reside. You, right. Going through, now this didn't do it. Oh, this is what causes that sort of signal. So. Yeah, and I've often noticed when you give an undergraduate that they, they go after the hard stuff first. <laughs> and so the trick is, let's make sure it's actually getting power into the instrument. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> It may be just a frayed wire. Right. You know, get an old meter in here and just see if all the pieces are actually working. Right. Because we've got one bet. And that's something you can do quickly. Yep. But that's intuition. It is, yeah. Uh, figuring what happens. So, anyway, this is one of the instruments. And so... Uh, and so, so, so the idea <coughs> of what you're going for here is that the standard model is very effective at explaining almost everything that it can explain, but there are these things that it can explain and there's almost no gaps or there's no there's no problems that would allow us to explain these things that we don't know. And so kind of what they're looking for here is, is there something about the standard model that isn't working the way we expect that might be able to explain why you have this asymmetry? Yeah, and by, you say, why are they making measurements to a few parts per trillion? Mm -hmm. It's by making measurements to a few parts per trillion you might be able to say, okay, here's another way we can test the model right. if we design this kind of instrument. So this has been going on literally for the past hundred years, is uh, you know looking mm -hmm. at the standard particle physics model and uh, finding ways to test it with greater and greater precision with different kinds of tools, trying to extend the model. As it says here, it's been every test that's been put on the standard physics model based is passed with flying colors. Right. But there are places where we can't yet test it. Yeah. Reminds me a lot of Big Bang cosmology. Mm -hmm. Is that in the early days, uh, we had a few tests of the Big Bang model, but there are other areas where we couldn't test it. And then you say, okay, we use this instrument. I mean, I can recall with a Big Bang, you say, okay, we're getting the right temperature, but if we're going to get galaxies, there needs to be some variation in the temperature. Mm -hmm. And so they found a way to build an instrument that could actually measure those temperature variations at the precision that was necessary. And of course that opened up to say, well, we want to explore inflation. We're going to need to be able to measure the polarization on that, right. which required a more sophisticated instrument. So it's making those kinds of measurements that tell you where you can develop equipment mm -hmm. to make a test in an area and basically extend the verification of the standard model. Right. So it works in cosmology. Mm -hmm. We're getting a more and more detailed cosmic creation model finding ways to test it more and more definitively, and that opens up opportunities to test it where places we've not been able to test it. This well, is the same kind of thing. No, it is. And, you know, one of, the, one of those other problems, not only is there the matter-antimatter asymmetry, is that 
in your standard model of particle physics, there's no room for dark matter. So, so there are some pretty significant things that we know tr are true about the universe that are not explained by the standard model. As successful as it is, we know it's incomplete. I love the, the, the quote you read about that. So. Right, right. And hey, you're a dark matter guy. I, I'm waiting for the time when you come into our office and say, hey, Hugh, we found another dark matter particle. So, cause well, that's I'm, kinda... I'm hoping it, it's one, and it's the one we're going to find when we fly in Antarctica next year. <laughs> right. Because that's the big thing about dark matter is mm -hmm. that we see lots of evidence for its gr the gravitational influence. Right. But trying to find the particles that are responsible for that gravity, that's the big challenge. Yes, it is. And uh, you need to have some really sophisticated instruments because these things are, are very difficult to measure. Yes, they are. So, so, so what did they find out of there? I mean, how did they get rid of the systematic errors, or how did they cope with the systematic well, errors? Well, basically by building four different instruments, like the one you saw here, completely different from one another, which means they had different instrumental effects. Okay. And so uh, that way they can kind of you know cancel off the systematics and basically get down, because they knew they had high sensitivity to really narrow down the random errors, the mm -hmm. noise errors. But it was the systematics that was blocking them from coming up with a really definitive measure. Okay. And so this really got past that barrier, and where they were able to prove uh, the ratio of the uh, electron to charge, pardon me, the mass, uh, charge to mass ratio of the proton compared to the antiproton to a few parts per billion, mm -hmm. this got it down to parts per trillion. So it really is the same, that we don't see any variation. You see there. no variation least no variation in the present era. Right. And that's what you'd expect from the standard model. You're not going to see anything today. Okay. But maybe where you've got the symmetry breaking happening, a lot of people think the one we talked about where you get a slight imbalance of uh, more protons to antiprotons, mm -hmm. that probably happened when the universe was about a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second old. Okay. This is probably where you get the symmetry breaking. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't make measurements at that energy scale but we can make measurements today at very high precision that will actually allow us to extrapolate back to that early right. era and figure out what's going on. And so, hey, now that we've got it to parts per trillion, what do we need to do to get it to parts per quadrillion? Mm -hmm. And if we get it to parts per quadrillion, are we actually going to be able to answer that question of how we uh, you know, explain why we got... And that's just one of the missing pieces right, yeah. in the standard, but that's probably the most significant missing piece. Uh, well, I would put it as one as one of four big pieces, but yes, it is certainly pieces. a very big missing piece. So. And it'd be really neat to have a complete understanding of all the symmetry breaking that takes place right. in the history of the universe. That has cosmological significance, it has particle model uh, significance, but the bottom line is this is all supporting uh, creation. This is exactly what you'd expect if it was a cosmic creation event that's responsible for all the particles coming into existence. Well, very good, Hugh. That's an interesting discovery and uh, definitely a uh, representation of a lot of hard work to make things and get, and get that measurement made. Well, well yeah, the paper's published in Nature. And, uh, hey, if you uh, go to our YouTube channel, this is where we actually post uh, all of these uh, stars, cells, and gods uh, episodes. Mm -hmm. And you'll see there in the notes the links to your paper, uh, the links to the paper I'm using, and, uh, hey, this is one that you can actually read. Uh, I think they have the entire paper available free of charge. Nice. Okay. So people can uh, take a look at that Very and, uh, you know, get down to it. And, of course, new into to the other articles. And, hey, encourage all of you out there 
uh, do subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's free. So just go to Reasons to Believe YouTube. You'll see it there. And that'll be a portal to actually look at thousands. I don't know how Are we above 10,000 now? I mean, you may be more of aware of a video clips that's on our YouTube channel. I know it's in the thousands. I'm not sure if we've broken 10,000 yet, but... That's hey, a lot. That's <laughs> a lot. And almost every day we're putting up new video clips there. So, so go to that. And yes, uh, RTB uh, underscore official is your gateway uh, to see uh, all of the uh, social media platforms that we have at Reasons to Believe. And I know you have a, uh, a Twitter page and a Facebook page. I've got a Facebook mm-hmm. and Twitter page. All of the scholars at Reasons to Believe do. And that's your place to make comments, ask questions, and uh, hey, it's a great chance uh, for all of us to engage people. So yes, please put your questions there. We'll do what we can to answer them. Thank you for watching.